This is Judaism Unbound, episode 123, The Religion of Israel. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And we are here at the discussion episode of the first part of our series looking at the present and future of the relationship of American Jews and Israel. Before we get started in looking back at the episodes that we've recorded up till now, I want to start, as we always do, by asking for your support. If you've been enjoying this series, if you appreciate the fact that we have leaned into the subject of Israel, even though it would have been a lot easier not to, <laughs> we would ex- we would appreciate it if you might express your support and your enthusiasm by making a small donation or perhaps a large donation to our work. You can do that by going to www.judaismunbound.com dot com slash donate and there are all kinds of ways that you can make a donation you can make a one-time donation you can make a regular ongoing donation of a small amount each month for example we really appreciate all those donations that people have made if you've once made a donation to judaism unbound but you can't remember when it was it probably was over a year ago and so you might want (laughs) to make your second annual donation which we'd really really appreciate the other way that you can help us continue to succeed in this work is to spread the word about Judaism Unbound. Obviously, it'd be great if you do that by letting your friends know about it, but you can also go to the Apple Podcast app or to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and even write a short review. We really appreciate those, and it really helps people find the show. So thanks so much for all the support that you give us, and uh, let's get started. So Lex, as I've been thinking back on these episodes that we've recorded recently. It puts me in the mind of something that happened to me over a decade ago when I was a New Hillel director, and we had an idea that we wanted to do something really splashy to sort of make it clear that this was a new leadership team and that we were going to do more exciting things. And so we tried to think about like what we wanted to do. And it turned out that one of my staff members had a friend who was a formerly ultra-Orthodox guy who had become a filmmaker and had been working on this film that was about circumcision, about the Jewish practice of circumcision, Brit Milah, which really, if you think about it, circumcision was one of the defining features of how you knew whether someone was a Jew or not for at least the last 2,000 years. And he made this film that explored the question of circumcision and ultimately came out against it. And he was just finishing up this film, and so we decided let's have the world premiere of this film at our Hillel, and it would be really an interesting event. And we actually had a great panel discussion with an Orthodox rabbi, with the filmmaker's father, who was still an ultra-Orthodox guy, actually a doctor, and the guy who stands outside of the hospital with the big sign saying, you know, that circumcision is terrible and you shouldn't do it. And so we had this panel discussion, and it was a really exciting and interesting event. And in the lead-up to it, in the days before, I started to get some phone calls from the Israeli consulate, from some other leaders in the Jewish community. And they said, uh, you know, how could you have such an event at your Hillel? You know, this is terrible. And I was like, well, you know, yeah, I know it's a little controversial, but, you know, we we like to explore all the dimensions of Judaism. And we think the students will be interested to know that this is even something that people talk about. And they were like, "Uh, no, 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 it's not that. It's the fact that in his bio, the artist wrote that he had grown up in Israel and decided to go to medical school in England because he didn't want to serve in the Israeli army due to ethical concerns or something along those lines. <laughs> and uh, I said, uh, okay, but you know, um, what, you know, it's not about the circumcision issue. And they're like, no, 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 it's about the, that issue. And I was like, okay, but um, 
but you know that this movie is against circumcision, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we understand that, but that's okay. You could talk about whatever you want about circumcision, but not about Israel. And um, that was kind of where it hit me that, that you know, it, Israel was sort of operating in the realm of religion, not so much in the realm that I think we often think about it as being, you know, a land or a place or even a refuge, you know, but that people had this kind of religious attitude towards Israel that they were acting in the ways that are much more normal and much more comfortable in the history of religion, right? Basically excommunicating people, creating, um, setting up things that you just can't talk about, et cetera, et cetera. And that the things that we used to think of as the main aspects of Judaism as a religion, basically things like God, circumcision, you know, intermarriage, you know, whatever, it's like, oh, you can have any opinion you want about that. I mean, we love the idea that college students today should, you know, be exploring a whole range of ideas. And actually, Hillel trumpets itself as about pluralism. You know, that's one of its watchwords. The whole idea is that, you know, of course, we all embrace the idea that Jews are all over the map on everything having to do with Judaism. And that's a good thing, except in one area. And so it, it sort of strikes me, especially as I'm reflecting back on these conversations, all the more so that that's a pretty accurate read of of what's going on in the world today of American Judaism, you know, and that that for some people, Israel really is functioning in the realm of religion. For many other Jews, it's not. And that's per perhaps one of the areas of disconnect, right? That um, that people are talking past each other because they're actually making a, a category difference, right? And that yeah. and that and 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 you know, I don't I don't know if that's sort of a helpful thing to point out here at the beginning in terms of trying to unpack this puzzle that we're talking about, which is kind of what is and might be and ought to be the future of the relationship of Israel and American Jews and American Judaism. But I but I think to recognize that it's operating in this realm of religion for a big chunk of, of American Jews is significant and part of what ultimately needs to go into the analysis. Yeah, it's it's huge, and it uh, so it points at a few things. One, um, so first, I'd, I'd push that I think actually you mentioned God and circumcision, and you also put an intermarriage. I think actually intermarriage is interestingly part of in certain corners. It's part of the same set of phenomena that influence Israel in the sense that people's tribal impulses and and worries about the security of Jewish people and the existence of the Jewish people manifest in Israel and on intermarriage, because the idea with both is that there is the existential threat of no longer having Jews around. I want to name that to start, but but mostly I really agree with you, especially on God and circumcision. A few years ago, I got an email in passing from somebody who is Jewish and opposes circumcision saying, hey, would you're a rabbinical student, Lex, I'm looking for people to sign up for this list of people who would be, who would be down to perform like non-circumcision based eighth day birth rituals for for Jewish families that are interested. I said, sure, great. Like, and I knew there would be nobody would nobody would push back on that. Nobody would think I'm um, like my thoughts on circumcision are very, very complicated. Um, but like I knew that the fact that I would be on this list wouldn't upset anybody. And similarly, I've been in synagogue after synagogue after synagogue where from the front of the room during services, rabbis will say things like, you know, for those in the room who believe in God and, and for those who don't, they'll, they'll name that people don't believe in God. They'll name that people have complicated feelings about God. They'll name all that. I don't hear so much 
for those of you who support the state of Israel, I don't hear that so much. And I think that even those kinds of passing phrases can show us a lot about how implicitly we are drawing lines. But absolutely, this is a religion. I mean, Noam Pianko talked about Israelism. Um, Shaul Magid, who we had on the show way back when, I think is one of the leaders in using that term for those who relate to Israel in a religious kind of sense. And I think it's real. And I think it points to something I've brought up here and there, which is that we think of religion a little bit incorrectly, I think. We think of religion as the realm of idea systems that relate to God. And that's a very Western and actually very Christian-influenced idea of what religion is. And and the word religion does stem from Latin, Christian, Greek. Like, like it stems from, from Christian roots, for sure. Um, but but it is religious the way that people feel so emotionally deeply invested in a particular kind of whether it's nationalism or family. I mean, that that's how many religious traditions manifest. And it's why I talk about things like sports fandom as religious in a non-ironic, non-laughy kind of way. I actually think that those are religious. And I think Israel is a perfect example of how actually really successfully Jews found this way to feel religious and to get some of the vitamins, for lack of a better term, of religion without it having to be about God. And that actually worked really well for a long time. And and we saw in the 20th century, as we looked back with Dove Waxman, with Noam Pianco, with a few of our guests, that that was really clicking for people. And today... It's it's clicking for some. I think it's clicking for fewer. And we we can talk about the the age demographic questions. We can we can talk about just general shifts that are not related to age. But um, it's not playing that same role. And I, I'm personally pleased by that. I don't think Israel being centralized as a religious construct, as something that one is devoted to in a sacred kind of sense. I'm using religious language intentionally. I don't think that that's healthy. I don't think any, and it's not because Israel is uniquely terrible. I I wouldn't want people to relate to America in that sense. I wouldn't want people to relate to any nation state in that kind of sacralized way because I think that there's just really straightforward historical issues that have arisen when that happens and lines that are drawn about around permissible kinds of people and impermissible that I'm not so excited about. If you think about it, it's very much kind of like people that are still buying Israel bonds or making donations to the JNF or, or whatever, because in the last, let's say, 50 years, the Israeli economy, you know, the GDP has, I don't know how many times grown. The point is, is that I I think that people are giving that money or buying those Israel bonds, not because they've actually made a calculation that Israel needs the money. And if they don't give the money, Israel's not going to be able to, you know, do X, Y, or Z that Israel's trying to do, plant trees, take care of hungry people. I mean, that's what every well-developed country does without receiving donations from outside. You know, every country has to take care of its environment. Every country has to take care of its poor people. That is the whole point of having a country. And so, you know, you could argue that Israel really needed that extra help in the early days, just like any new country would, but it doesn't anymore because its economy is so successful. So I I think that it's not that, right? It's that, that people are doing it 
consciously or unconsciously, and I think largely unconsciously, because fundamentally they feel like this is what I'm supposed to do as a member of this religion, which they're which they believe the religion that they're talking about is Judaism. Uh, but it's a division of Judaism. It's a denomination of Judaism, just like any other denomination. So, you know, in Reform Judaism, you're supposed to do a lot of tikkun olam. And in Israel Judaism, you're supposed to do a lot of donating to the JNF, you know. But it's not, um, but but it but it, it really hit me, like, in a really helpful way, actually, that, oh, now, you know, all this stuff that I used to kind of go around saying, like, why are people still making these, like, small donations to these Israeli organizations or to Israel, the country? That doesn't really need it. Oh, now I get it. It's it's that they're actually acting uh, out of religious impulse, and and that you know in some ways gives it more respect. You know, I don't subscribe to that religion, but you know, at least I sort of understand it in a certain way. You're helping me figure out a frame that I've never quite as bluntly applied to Israel conversations. But I mean, I'm thinking about Melissa Weintraub's episode with us, where she talked about her work with resetting the table and bringing together dialogue. And what I'm realizing is. I think that if we look at Melissa Weintraub's resetting the table conversations as interfaith dialogue among Jews, like they're all Jews, but it's interfaith dialogue. And I actually think that interfaith, I I often criticize the term interfaith dialogue because I think that Judaism isn't really writ large a faith. Like Judaism doesn't have a creed, a, a binding agent that all Jews believe in the sense that Christians do. And it's not that all Christians, like, but at a certain point, many Christians will tell you that if they don't believe in Jesus as the Son of God, like they're sort of, they'll question themselves and whether they are even Christian. There's like Jews who don't believe in God, some of them might question whether they're Jews, but fewer of them than Christians. So like it's less faithy to me. But within Judaism, I would say many things are faiths because they do have actual concrete belief systems that sort of, if you have them, you are part of it. If you don't, you don't. And Israelism, to use Noam Pianko's term, is one such faith. And to bridge that divide with people who are so deeply outside of it that they might be in a different faith, like me, um, who for whom the daily rhythm of my life is imbued with a quest, a journey to change Israel, a kind of mission that I do view as as sacred, uh, that is not about preserving Israel as is or its exist. It is about changing Israel. And I think that is also a, a deep kind of re- religious impulse in, in terms of how it manifests in my life, even though God is not really there in, in that question. I mean, it, it may be indirectly for me and maybe indirectly for the people who are identifying on more, more on the pro-Israel side of this conversation. Maybe God is there for some of them too. And, and viewing all of this as an interfaith conversation helps us understand why it is so deep. Because otherwise it's just like, why, why is it so hard to talk about Israel? It's a political question. Like, but like, it's because this is tugging people's soul in a variety of directions. This is a religious, deeply emotional kind of issue in a way that even God or circumcision is not. It, it gives some light to this puzzle that, that I've had a really hard time wrapping my mind around, and, and I still am having trouble uh, despite all of our conversations. I have a really hard time understanding the the drawing of these red lines around what can and can't be discussed and and what kind of speakers can come to an organization and and any of that kind of thing. 
I, I think that that is a much more, you know, understandable, if not justifiable line when you're talking about different religions. Like I was a, a professor at a Catholic law school many years ago. And I remember that one of my colleagues took the position that somebody who was pro-choice should never be invited to speak at this law school. Now, putting to the side the fact that half the faculty was pro-choice, um, I, I always found it a really puzzling position to take because I felt like, look, here we are, we're a law school. We're all about trying to help people make better arguments. It seems to me that if you opposed abortion, wouldn't the best thing to do be to have somebody who is pro-choice come and speak on the very first day of law school. So then you would have three years to help all these students understand what's wrong with those arguments and understand how to argue back or whatever. Instead, you're going to not expose them to this position for three years. You're almost going to isolate them from any position that's contrary to their religious beliefs. And then they're going to go out on the street and they're going to be hit with it and they're going to have no way to respond or all their responses are going to be only responses that were developed in an echo chamber. So are actually unpersuasive. And so it just feels so illogical to me the way that we're handling this and the only way that it makes sense, although it doesn't make sense, but the way that it makes sense is to understand it in the religious context. And by that, I just mean this is how religions have been operating for thousands of years. It may be stupid, but this is how religions have been operating. So. I've I've engaged very deeply with the red lines question and I've spent a lot of time trying to eliminate them and I agree with like almost everything you said but my my opposition to them I think comes from a a differently cynical kind of place. I I actually think that there is a logic a a, a bad logic, a, a harmful logic in these red lines because I don't think it's actually about the speech. It, like I don't think it's really about particular speakers being allowed or not allowed like the policy itself of saying x kinds of speakers are not allowed and in most cases in in the jewish context around israel it's people who are not zionist or people who support the boycott divestment sanctions movement those are the ones who are not allowed it's actually not about barring their speech in many cases they wouldn't they wouldn't be invited to speak anyway in a lot of these places but writing it down and stating it and making it a a policy it's an identity marker it is a way of of creating a sense of who is part of a community and who is not and what it does is it sends a message that those who are not zionist and those who support the boycott divestment sanctions movement are not they're not they're not part of whatever that community is. And I actually think that is the purpose of of these. I, I don't think that's a byproduct. I think that is the purpose of these policies. And it actually relates to our conversations about Zionism, because what's so maybe ironic or just different about Zionism today is that it's actually perceived as much more universal than it was when Israel was founded and and just beforehand. I mean, Zionism, as Dove Waxman spoke about, as Peter Beiner spoke about, as as many of our guests spoke about, was a minority opinion in the early and even towards the mid-20th century. And even after the Holocaust, even after the founding of Israel, there were still vigorous debates about what Zionism should look like and what the state of Israel should look like to the point that we have that incredible quote where 
explicitly, Jacob Blaustein said that this relationship needs to be conditional and American support of Israel should only be based on when Israel is acting in line with values that American Jewish institutions support. I mean, that's the kind of statement that in such a blunt capacity would be less likely to be heard today. Um, And I bring that up because I think we lose so much just intellectually and communally when we discard this rich history of different Zionisms and non-Zionisms and complicated Zionisms and ambiguities around Zionism. Just in this series, to wrestle with Achad Ha'am um, and his cultural Zionism a few times and really think about what it means to have a kind of Jewish worldwide connection that isn't about a state and to push past the, the contemporary assumption that nation equals state fascinating and important and really not dumb like this this is not some trivial ridiculous idea that should be pushed aside because oh we've got a state now it's irrelevant like i'm really interested in continuing that conversation and, and asking what it would look like if we rethought what what jewish nationalism manifested as and and on that note i think it just goes without saying to me that we should be ready and excited for all of those orientations to be in our Jewish communities. It's actually less from an Israel place and more from our general Judaism unbound place of like, we gotta be experimenting. We we gotta be we gotta be asking huge questions and trying very radical new kinds of experiments. And just as we've said over and over again that people with less inculcation into into Jewish institutions might be exactly the ones to create new kinds of Jewish institutions to lead the way for the future. It might be the people that have been less inculcated into the Israelism that has become enshrined in many Jewish institutions. It might be those people that create incredible Jewish paths forward. And if we're barring those folks from the door, if we're saying they're not allowed to speak uh, because Jews themselves are often some of the folks who are barred from speaking in these organizations, if, if we're not going to even let them in the door, then how are they then going to sit at the table and, you know, ask others to the table, all the metaphors we've used in the past? Like, we have to, we have to really believe that they have potential. And I think the explicit purpose of these, of these red lines is to, is to say, nope, they don't, and they're not part of us. Zionism, like you say, Zionism meant many, many different things in the time of its origination, let's say in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And what happened largely, I think, thanks to the establishment of the state of Israel, is that one of many definitions of Zionism sort of prevailed. And arguably, with the rise of the Likud in Israel, um, even a a subset of that form of Zionism sort of prevailed. That's the sort of um, very nationalistic form of Zionism, which was like a subset of, let's say, the Herzl Zionism that was focused on a state which itself was a subset of all those other Zionisms that include may or may not have included a state as we understand it, but that were fundamentally under, as I understood it from Noam Pianko, that, you know, involves something happening in the land of Israel, but not necessarily a state. And that, um, you know, that ultimately the purpose of Zionism was for the good of the Jewish people all over the world, not for the, the purpose of the state and the state becoming the dominant and, and predominant uh, entity, right? So, so now it's totally fair that over the course of time, 
a certain definition of something wins out. And it's also totally fair to say that a minority position at one point in time becomes the majority position in in a future time. You know, that happens. However, if you're in the camp that says, you know, I regret that this became the majority position, right? I think that there are problems in the fact that this became the majority position. I think it's really helpful and important to be able to go back in time and say, hey, you know, this idea, this word had a lot more variability at an earlier point in time. And therefore, it is an authentic thing to do to say it can be different in the future. And so then the question is, like, how do we look at it today? And, and that's where, to me, the, the labeling, are you a Zionist or a non-Zionist? And I think that Sharon Kleinbaum pointed this out, um, that it's, it's actually helpful to both extremes, right? That, that the, in a certain way, the extremes on the left and the right have an agreement about what Zionism is, and they're either for it or against it. Whereas the, there's a huge number of people in the middle that actually have no clue what Zionism really is. And so the question is, do they have to accept the framing of the extremes that say, here's what it is, it's, it's basically all about the state of Israel? Um, or is it possible in some way to rescue, I mean, I think that Noam Pianko was a little bit dubious about this, but to sort of resuscitate the term Zionism? Or is it that we actually just sort of have to come up with new terminology and sort of say, look, I mean, is it helpful today to say that Israel today, especially with the Likud government being in power for, you know, two decades or whatever, that that, that is the manifestation, the ultimate manifestation of Zionism? Or is it possible to say, look, What's going on in Israel today is one version of Zionism. It's a version of Zionism that throughout the history of Zionism, a lot of folks have opposed. And it's legitimate. Again, I'm not suggesting that I agree or disagree on a policy level. But what I am suggesting is that it's legitimate to have this conversation in the Jewish community without being accused of betrayal or some version of heresy that puts you outside the bounds of the community. That, I think, is extremely damaging and ultimately really not true to history. So that's where I'm trying to kind of swim around and, and puzzle this out in my head. I have a few just like synthesis thoughts that um, relate to these episodes, but also broader Judaism Unbound, because I really like, I think it's so important to not see this set of episodes as, oh, we took this like brief exit off the highway of Judaism Unbound to Israel conversations and now we're then we're gonna re-enter like this really is part and parcel this is a this is part of American Judaism and part of the wrestling that we're doing so first I'm flashing back actually to Yehuda Kurtzer's first episode so not this most recent one but he talked about the the B'nai Brak test and he was talking about whether so B'nai Brak is an ultra-orthodox community in Israel and and it's deeply, super fundamentally different um, from from the kind of non-Orthodox Jewish life that Dan and I and I figure most of our listeners are, are, are living. And the question was on a peoplehood kind of landscape, like, do you consider yourself part of a family or part of a community or, or in the same group as an ultra-Orthodox Jew in B'nai Brak, whose value systems and beliefs are just actually diametrically opposed to yours, in yours being mine in this case, in in every way or in most ways. And that's a very challenging question for me. It's also a really challenging question for me to ask the 
it, maybe it's not the Mene Brock test. Maybe it's the maybe we could choose a settlement in the West Bank as the as the right um, the right name for this. Yeah, uh, like the Hebron test. The, the, yeah, we we could go with the Hebron test or the, I don't know. Um, there's also, but like, do you do you care to construct a Judaism or a Jewish community that includes you and the people that are farthest from you on the question of Zionism or BDS or any of this um, and and think of yourselves as one people. And I I really don't know my answer for that. My my initial reaction is like I can't I can't imagine what it would look like for for a critical mass of people like me and a critical mass of right wing Likud or even farther right Habayit Hayyhudi Jewish home kinds of folks like I couldn't imagine what a community made up of us would be does that mean there's already a schism does that mean that there should be a schism does that mean that there will be a schism does that mean that like like I should reevaluate I, I don't know um but I think that that question should be asked around Zionism because currently we have institutional structures that actually say explicitly that they don't support that Bene Brock test from the other angle so we've got people that are located Loosely, actually, in the center to center right, a lot of the time on on the question of Israel, they, they they are Zionists. They they believe strongly in the continued existence of a Jewish state. They they may have a mixture of feelings about a Palestinian state, um, but they're they're crafting institutions that consciously say the B'nai Brock test for anti-Zionists is going to be a no. But it feels like an institution that um, says that we're going to put, let's say, folks you know, on the far left, that we're going to put them out of the institution, right, by not allowing them to speak, like they lose the moral high ground to say that they're not acting in a schismatic way, you know, and then when those folks on the far left say, we're going to consider folks on the far right to be outside of our red line, it's like those institutions don't really have a leg to stand on. They could make the argument, but they don't really have a leg to stand on to say that that's wrong of you to, how could you not accept somebody from Hebron as a fellow Jew? Well, but you put us outside of the organization. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the unstated and sometimes stated response from the institutions is, look, if you're anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, that like, like, like that's that's the response. And obviously, like I think there's general agreement for the most part that like anti-Semites are probably not what we want Jewish life to be regularly featuring. But like then there's the question of who's an anti-Semite. And when your when your line of anti-Semitism is if you oppose the state of Israel, then you're an anti-Semite, and that's actually more your definition of anti-Semitism than than all sorts of other manifestations of actual hatred of Jews. Um, like, like then it's, it, it, it's hard. Like that's, that's the response. But a question that I have though is, isn't it, couldn't you say the same thing on the other side and to say that, um, you shouldn't, we, we don't want to have racists speaking in our public. So yeah. if you call them and racists, people do. And then that, and, you're going to sort of in your mind, rightly exclude them. Yeah. And that's exactly, I mean, that's what we're seeing play out in the Jewish world, but also in, in the broader world. And that's why there's so many vigorous, like intense, occasionally violent, debates about debates like about normalization and and what what's actually happening when you feature a speaker is the featuring of a particular viewpoint whether whether or not it's endorsing it is it still perpetuating that viewpoint in a certain kind of way and does that mean that doing so is automatically problematic if the voice is is deeply wrong in, in a more like like and honestly I've I've 
I've wrestled a lot myself with like, I don't want racists speaking in my communities. Um, and there are, there are certain people that I think to have a platform would do harm to the world. And, and it's, and it's balancing that with the desire for free speech. I mean, and that plays out in a lot of issues, but um, it, I'm like, as a segue, it relates perfectly to, so we've been talking about with the boycott divestment sanctions movement, because like you said, it is a movement, but also it's a big, loose collection of general tactics and and orientations towards a particular state, towards Israel. And when people ask, like, I'm often asked and put on the spot, like, do you support the BDS movement? I'm not in the business of affiliate. I don't affiliate with a Jewish denominational movement. I don't affiliate. I don't really do that. But there, there are B's and D's and S's that are well-founded and that I align myself with. And there are other B's and D's and S's that I don't. And I think, like you said, there is an explicit goal of folks who either stridently support all B's, D's, and S's or stridently oppose them to pretend that they're packaged. And this is where the synthesis comes in. I think this actually, in a weird way, relates to our unbundling conversations that we're constantly having. Because when you think that relationship to Israel is a package deal and either you are fully on board and you're in the the Israelist camp you are waving the flag around and you oppose every B every D every S and you don't even engage in deep conversation about them because to do so would be admitting that there is a reasonable conflicting like if that's a package deal and then the other package deal is you are entirely opposed to any form of Ju- of Jewish sovereignty um, or at least like Jewish statehood in the sense that we think of it um, every every B, every D, every S, no matter what its form is, has license with respect to a state because the end goal makes all of the means worthwhile. When those are each package deals, you are totally right. Like it benefits, it, it forces people into a into a kind of polarization. Um, I actually I use polarization in a in a neutral sense. I often certain kinds of polarization I like and others I don't. This polarization I don't like because I think it's actually just not honest. I think that to to paint that picture and imply that those are the two camps is not reality. Um, and that's why when people ask about the BDS movement, I'm conscious to say, okay, which B's and which D's and which S's are you talking about? Because honestly, when I ask most people, they do not know. What, so some consumer boycotts are about just the West Bank. Others are about Israel more broadly. Others are about in the West Bank and specifically doing things to perpetuate the occupation. I mean, we can we can talk specifics. I like talking specifics. And the and most institutional infrastructures are designed to not talk specifics because to do so would create a kind of complex landscape where you really have to dig deep and make some of those calls. And it's much easier to say pro-Israel, 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 all Bs, all Ds, all S are off the table. Um, and it's and from anybody who orients towards Judaism from a place of deep intellectual searching or deep spiritual searching, I think we've got to ask whether we're willing to have this one issue that we don't poke and prod from every last Tom Munich angle. So if what I want to say out there to sort of anybody who, you know, for whom I have like deep respect, right, who who believes that the BDS movement is is an existential threat, right, is is a is a terrible thing that should be opposed vigorously, go ahead and oppose it, but don't make it so that anybody who says the word or who thinks that, you know, some kind of a boycott 
could be useful to the process. You can argue with them and tell them how wrong they are, but don't say to them that you are being cut out of our community. And, and that's the part that I just, I cannot wrap my head around it. You know, I, I just can't understand why you would take that position about speech other than what you say like what you said is that is that you say that it's by definition anti-semitism but the thing is is that you you can say that x y and z are anti-semitism but if jews are doing it disproportionately like like more jews are involved in the bds movement than like percentage wise yeah. Like, yeah so you could say that it's stupid and horrible and mean and whatever but but it's but to say that it's anti-semitism by definition is extremely patronizing right towards those who who themselves are Jewish and who don't in any way believe that they're anti-Semites, you know, then you're saying that that they, they just don't understand they are anti-Semites. And, and it just seems like, you know, even if that might be true of, let's say, 25 percent of them, right? You know, I mean, I'm not saying it is, but like, even if you believe that it was true, it's like, OK, but there's still a lot of people there that are not anti-Semites. They might be misguided. And like I'm saying about that conversation I had with my colleague at the law school, it's like, so why don't you find a way to go into relationship with these folks and, you know, help them see the light, right? And and that's where, you know, I, I want to sort of point out that one of the most deeply problematic things that I have seen in the last few years was this video of the philanthropist Michael Steinhardt getting out of his car at some kind of event that was honoring him, I believe, for his uh, contributions to the Birthright Israel program to send all these, these Jewish young people to Israel. And there was a protest outside of that event. And he got out of that car and saw this protest and he gave them the finger. And to me, it was like, I just can't, I still can't get over that. I, I literally kind of have these like waking nightmares about it. You know, the idea that, that this man who really put a lot of his money and a lot of his efforts into sending people to Israel, I think in the hopes that they would come back feeling very supportive of Israel, but that some of them came back and they care so much that they want to get involved to try to make Israel better and that they don't agree with him. And that his response to that could have been, number one, I'm so proud that these folks are thinking for themselves. Number two, I think these people are idiots. I'm going to come up and talk to them so that I can persuade them otherwise. Or three, I'm going to put these people in the camp of enemy and I am going to treat them like an enemy. And he chose number three. I don't think that, that these folks think that way about anything else in their lives. And it's just sort of, um, I, I guess, like, at the end of the day, it's my question is, like, what can be done about it? Look, this, when Steinhardt flipped that middle finger, so I was upset, but also I was kind of, I was pleased it was out there. I was pleased that this was, that this was visible. Because... As somebody who immerses in this issue a lot, it's very clear to me that that's how he and many others feel. It's very clear to me that that um, that people like me who agitate to try to make a better and different Israel and to be in solidarity with Palestinians, it's very clear to me that that's not a success story to him. Like, why would he respond to people who go on his trip? or our engagement and and do care about Israel just in a way that is diametrically opposed to him. And the answer to me is actually simple. It's not that it's a bad question. It's that he frames what he's doing and many others frame what they're doing as we just want to build a relationship. 
We, we've been using the term relationship, American-Jewish relationship to Israel. And, that, and people talk about it. They just want people to have a relationship and care about Israel. And they can criticize and they can all of this. And, and like, that's, that's, what they, that's what the rhetoric is. But when, when you see in broad daylight in the middle of New York City, in front page news and all sorts of Jewish publications, that when people do that, the result is the people funding give them the middle finger. It's clear that actually the goal isn't just a general relationship to Israel, however it manifests. The goal is a particular set of narrow relationships to Israel that revolve around verbs like support and love and go to. I mean, the, the, that's the success. It's it's not this general relationship, and and so seeing that and having people recognize that that what these what some of these programs are looking to do, and look, there are also many wonderful, wonderful programs that involve trips to Israel that involve trips to the West Bank attached to trips to Israel that involve dialogue that involve all sorts of things. I don't want to claim that all of these are from some malicious place, but it's helpful information to know that core people that have put together really important Jewish initiatives are not interested in quite the same thing that you and I are, which is more generally a relationship. I mean, it's we want people not to be apathetic. I believe thoroughly that if more people become not apathetic about Israel, it will be in ways that align with my views that Palestinians deserve freedom and dignity. Um, so I believe the project of getting more Jews to care about Israel will lead to them gravity because that's what people with secure beliefs think is is that more people finding that question will will gravitate towards their beliefs Sharon, Sharon Kleinbaum spoke beautifully about that so I I want people genuinely to have those relationships with Israel because I think they'll be like mine St like what's clear is that maybe maybe Steinhardt thought that when he put together the program but when it turns out in a way that's different he's not happy about it and um it is surprising in a sense but it's also very logical I think I think that a lot of our focus is on the conflict, and rightly so to the extent that you want to right the situation, either for Israel's sake or for the sake of Palestinians' dignity or for whatever reason. You know, rightly so, this is something that we want to really focus on and, and get dealt with ASAP. But in addition to that, I think it's helpful to think beyond that and to ask the question, is the kind of drifting apart, let's say, of much of the Jewish community in America and Israel, is that because of the conflict or is that, or would that have happened either way? And I basically have the impulse, the feeling that it would have happened either way and, and maybe actually more profoundly had it not been for the conflict. That if it had not been for the conflict, I think that Israel and American Judaism would have diverged even more. And so I think that's valuable to think about only because so much it seems that our conversation about the role that Israel should have in the sort of hearts and minds of American Jews is put in the language of some kind of betrayal, right? That if American Jews don't have a relationship with Israel, they're somehow betraying Israel, as opposed to if American Jews and Israel don't have much of a relationship, that would be the most natural thing in the world. And actually, every relationship that they do have is a miracle. I think it's true that there is a natural element of this. And I also think it's true that if there wasn't, a, if there wasn't an occupation, if there wasn't a pressing issue that gets front page news all around the world, including in America, about Israel, that it actually would be more tenuous. Now, I, I think that it's counterintuitive, but we 
but we think that the conflict, I mean, yes, the, the, the ways that Israel treats Palestinians are infuriating a lot of American Jews. Um, it's also not infuriating other, other American Jews, but like, I, there's this idea that if that weren't the case, then all would be better. And it might be more like peaceful. There might be less tension between the two communities, but I think there would also just be less everything like that. There would all of the, a lot of the programming that exists that's organized by American Jews related to Israel is based on the presumption that Israel is in deep danger. And if Israel was not presumed to be in deep danger, um, and whilst, once again, I'm not saying it actually is or isn't, it's just that's the presumption. If there wasn't that presumption, I think that the communities would do what they do and they'd float in various directions and each generation would, it's, I love the, the analogy that Yehuda Kirster used of like, your, your first cousins are your people, your third and fourth cousins aren't your people. I think that's absolutely right in terms of this America and Israel relationship. Um, but also there's a good element, like the fact of being separate means that we've got sort of multiple labs for Judaisms to arise. And I think that there's an argument that a schism would actually yield more for the futures of each community and maybe eventually of a of a a something that would come together in however many hundred years recombining them like I, who know we, we don't know what the future is going to hold but but basically i love that you're saying that a schism between israel and, and american judaisms is not necessarily this travesty. There, there's clear downsides that we heard about from Yehuda Kurtzer. I think the, having both lenses into Jewish power and having having that ability to, to compare and contrast between the two is nice. And you get that when you're in relationship with each other and you know the other the other community. But there's also really positive pieces that come from being separate. We certainly have a tradition in Judaism of the idea of separateness and connection. And maybe ultimately that is something that would be worthy of deeper exploration is the idea that it's not that there necessarily has to be a schism between American Judaism and Israel. And it's not necessarily that there has to be a schism between ultra-Orthodoxy and secular Judaism, for example. But there can also be a recognition of more difference than people currently like to talk about for the most part. So right to say, yeah, we're third cousins and we're not brothers and we're not parents and <laughs> child and we're not sisters and we're not siblings and we're not whatever. We are third cousins and next year we're going to be next generation we're going to be fourth cousins. That is still a closer Once removed. Yeah, but that is still a closer relationship than a hundredth cousins where, you know, in a certain point of view, yeah, we're still related. We're related to everyone in the world. But no, we recognize that we have a closer relationship. And yet, nevertheless, we are not one people in the way that we should be sort of trying to enforce some kind of unitary position, which ultimately often means deferring to the most extreme in one direction or another, usually in the more conservative direction. You know, that's usually what happens when we insist on pluralism and unif unification as sort of the, the primary goal. So, so look, I mean, is this dangerous in, for certain people, for certain ways that people think? For sure, right? If you believe that the unity of the Jewish people is the only thing keeping Israel from being destroyed, then you're not going to like this point of view. And I would love to talk to you. I don't want to uh, ban you from our from our uh, institutions. You know, um, I get it and I respect it. Right. I understand that that people believe that I don't believe that. 
and um, it, you know, and and if you believe that the future of Judaism for various reasons having nothing to do with existential concerns. But if you believe that it, it is a better Judaism that is centered on Israel, right? That essentially where where Israel is sort of the new Jerusalem, right? With it, it is the center and all of us who don't live in Israel are kind Israel of Israel is the New Jerusalem. <laughs> but, That's poetry. But if you and if you but if you believe that those of us who are living out here in the hinterlands ought to see ourselves as kind of these diasporic Jews in the sense that, um, you know, we are not living where we ought to be living. If, if that is your belief, again, I respect it. I don't agree with it. I I want to build a Judaism that is more like Babylon and Jerusalem, right? It, that is more like one that says that, yes, or like a Am says, right, that one, what's going on in Israel in a, in a better circumstance could be really, really wonderful and important. And what could be going on here in America and elsewhere in a better circumstance could be uh, wonderful and important, and that perhaps in the relationship between these communities, something really amazing could happen in the conversation between them, and in the and then and in the learning from one another. But that is on the realm of you know that we are a little more distantly related than I think we often like to talk about. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, and it's it's the way we're going to close out this episode, which maybe that feels counterintuitive for the close to a unit on the the relationship between American Jews and Israel, or at least the first half of our unit, to, to close on a point that says there's actually a lot of distance between Israeli Jews and American Jews. But I think that that's a point we don't state often enough, which is that it has been a long time since Israel was founded and that there is a natural distancing that does happen. It's not to say that that needs to predetermine some sort of non-contact or silence between the communities. We should, for all of the reasons our guests have been talking about, be bridging those divides and seeking to build conversations across difference. But there is a real difference. So I love that point. And uh, we're going to close out this unit of episodes on it. So Thank you for listening into these. We we didn't talk about Israel for the first couple years of our existence, and it felt like this was the time to really do so. So we're glad that you hopped aboard our journey into this important topic, and it's going to be continuing with a number of further episodes in the coming weeks. So we're going to close out this episode in the same way that we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can hit us up on Twitter at at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can hit us up via email at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last plug we like to make is that you can always support us with a financial donation. And you can do that at JudaismUnbound.com slash donate with either a monthly recurring gift or a one-time donation. So thanks so much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this foray into Israel. It is going to continue with a bunch more fantastic episodes. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.